This is Heterodox Out Loud. I'm Zach Rausch. Today, to close out our selection of blogs about diversity and some of the controversies involved, we hear from social psychologist Jonathan Haidt. Six years ago, in early 2015, a wave of campus protests spread across the United States. From Yale to Claremont McKenna College, students demanded change, protesting racial, gender, and sexual injustices that they saw on their campuses and in broader society. Today's blog, True Diversity Requires Generosity of Spirit, written by Jonathan Haidt in November 2015, is a call for patience, generosity, and a dash of humility, especially towards those we think to be doing us wrong. This piece has withstood the test of time, offering ancient wisdom to help deal with modern problems. Haidt is a professor of ethical leadership at New York University's Stern School of Business. He is also Heterodox Academy's co-founder and board chair. We're going to be speaking with John about his blog. We need to be slower to judge, quicker to forgive, and we need to recognize that we are biased and incomplete. We make mistakes. And social life, a cooperative community, inclusion, these things can't happen if we encourage a norm of taking people in the least generous way. Before my interview with him, here's John reading his blog, True Diversity Requires Generosity of Spirit. Diversity is inherently divisive. In a classic social psychology experiment, Henri Tajfel created artificial groups by randomly telling some people that they had overestimated the number of dots on a page, while others were told that they were underestimators. Without even talking to each other, people later favored the members of their group. So how easy is it going to be to create a mutually trusting and tolerant society on America's college campuses when those colleges are actively seeking out people who differ by race, nationality, and class? And what if colleges never start seeking out viewpoint diversity, as we advocate on this site? The answer is that diversity is hard. And one reason it's so hard is that campus diversity programs rarely begin by extolling the essential precondition for tolerance, generosity of spirit. Social life always contains misunderstandings. Diversity multiplies them by 10. Modern social media multiplies them by 10 again. Training students to react to microaggressions, which are small and often unintentional slights, multiplies the misunderstandings still further. In November of 2015, we witnessed one of the most shocking cases of this lack of generosity at Claremont McKenna College in California. The dean of students resigned in response to massive student protests. What was the dean's offense? A Latina student had written an essay in an online journal saying that she did not feel that she belonged at CMC. She did not use the word mold herself, but her letter suggested the concept of a template or normative standard. Here's the quote. Our campus climate and institutional culture are primarily grounded in Western, white, cis-heteronormative upper-to-upper-middle-class values. End quote. In response to this letter, the Dean of Students, Mary Spellman, reached out to her. Here is the full text of Spellman's now infamous email. Quote, Lisette, thanks for writing and sharing this article with me. 
We have a lot to do as a college and a community. Would you be willing to talk to me about these issues? They are important to me and the Dean of Students staff, and we are working on how we can better serve students, especially those that don't fit our CMC mold. End quote. The student interpreted Dean Spellman's email in the least generous way possible. She was offended by Dean Spellman's use of the word mold, and she posted the email on Facebook. The response was explosive. Protests, hunger strikers, demands for mandatory faculty sensitivity training, and demands that Dean Spellman apologize and resign, which she did. You can watch students taunting Dean Spellman on YouTube. The section beginning at 41 minutes is particularly cruel. A member of the crowd condemns Dean Spellman for falling asleep during the Inquisition, when it is clear from the rest of the video that the poor woman was only closing her eyes because she was struggling to hold back her tears. Philosophers often advocate what they call the principle of charity. It means that in any discussion, we interpret other people's statements in the way that makes their argument strongest, not weakest. We give them the benefit of the doubt, rather than trying to twist their words to support the ugliest possible implications, as we see happening in many of the ongoing campus crises. So I would like to propose a plan for restoring peace on campus and helping those who want to reform campus life to do so effectively. Let us all read Dale Carnegie's classic work, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Carnegie shows us exactly how to get along with those who differ from us and how to change their minds. Don't attack people. Be more indirect and psychologically skillful. Try to see things honestly from their point of view and acknowledge what they're doing right before you say what you'd like them to change. Appeal to nobler motives. And after Carnegie, here's the advanced credit reading list. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, such as, Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Buddha's Dhammapada, such as, It is easy to see the faults of others, but difficult to see one's own faults. And a selection of verses from all the world's wisdom literature passed down to us to warn us of our tendency to be mean-spirited, vindictive, and hypocritical. Make these tolerance-promoting works the required summer reading list for all incoming students, faculty, and administrators. At present, college summer reading lists focus on social justice concerns, which seem likely to have the opposite effect from reading for generosity of spirit. Diversity is inherently divisive. It takes work to reap its benefits. And as we argue here at Heterodox Academy, the most valuable kind of diversity of all is also the most divisive viewpoint diversity. Without generosity of spirit and a dash of humility, the diversity project, indeed the American project, is doomed to fail. Just look at Congress. Let us all step back, press the reset button, and do some reading that may help us to live together in peace, generosity, and diversity. Jonathan Haidt. True diversity requires generosity of spirit. Now our interview. Thank you, John, for coming on to Heterodox Out Loud. My pleasure, Zach. Thanks for digging up this old blog post. <laughs> so today we're going to talk about your blog, True Diversity Requires Generosity of Spirit, that you wrote November 18th, 2015. In the very first sentence of your blog, you wrote that diversity is inherently divisive. 
What exactly do you mean by this, and why is this the case? So um, diversity is one of these really interesting words and concepts, which is very important sociologically and, and in social psychology. But because it is such a sacred word in our politics nowadays, our thinking about it is really, really bad. And if you just go back to basic social psychology, we evolved to be tribal. We're really good at doing us versus them. Uh, but we're also really good at lowering the lowering the drawbridge. Or, and so the more you emphasize the differences between people, the more you divide them into groups, and it often interferes with the very goals of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So I'm concerned as a social psychologist that our research and our thinking, especially in the corporate world on diversity, is really divorced from the social psychology. And if we would use the social psychology, we could lower those boundaries, get people to have greater trust and interaction, learn about each other, be curious about each other. And we could actually address the problems rather than making essentially no progress decade after decade. So you also write about, kind of on the other hand, the principle of charity in your piece. Can you talk more about this and its role in education? Yes. When someone says something, there's a broad range that within which you can interpret it. You can interpret it in the most generous way possible, um, or you can interpret it in the least generous way possible. And um, if your goal is to learn or to have a good interaction uh, or to uh, work with someone else, you should probably interpret it as generously as possible give them the benefit of the doubt until they show clearly that they are acting in good faith or they hate you or they're racist or something like that. But if you don't care about the person you're talking to and your goal is to score points and get other people to applaud you, then in some contexts, what you should do is rip that person to shreds. And this is why I think um, social media, Twitter in particular, but also Facebook, many, many other platforms, it puts, us, it puts us all into a situation. It's kind of like gladiators in a ring where we kind of fight with each other to make entertainment for others. And of course, that brings people onto the platforms. And so social media, I think, has really brought out the worst in us. It has made many people, it, it trains people to uh, apply what's the opposite principle of charity, the, the principle of paranoia or something, or the principle of contempt. And so the reason that I brought it out in this essay is that this this situation at, uh, uh, at Claremont McKenna, this is the most stunning example of the opposite of the principle of charity. And there were no grown-ups there who could point that out. All the grown-ups just went along. Um, so when this student had reached out, or rather when a student wrote an essay uh, talking about how she felt marginalized and a dean of students reached out to her privately reached out a hand and, and clearly was trying to be helpful and warm and inviting. Uh, and the student interpreted in the worst possible way, in a very strange way, she was vaguely able to imply that this was somehow racist or exclusionary or something. Um, and the poor woman basically gets subjected to a Maoist struggle session. The students demanded she be fired. I think she wasn't fired per se, but she she did ultimately resign because you know, it's just horrible to have everyone saying terrible things about you. And so that's why I, I wrote this blog, because I'd never seen anything like this in higher education. 
And the fact that president of the university and all the other higher administrators didn't stand up for her, they didn't challenge what this undergraduate had done, they shouldn't have punished her. But what a teaching example, what a moment to say, now, wait a second, did she, do you really think she was trying to shame you, to exclude you? But people were so afraid. And that's been a hallmark of, of this whole time since about 2013, 2014. People are so afraid. And it's because others out there will take your words in the worst possible light. And so people just stay silent. And I think that this really connects to what you're talking about with social media, but you wrote this blog actually in 2015, and a lot has changed since then. If you could, would you change anything now that you wrote then? So until 2012, 2013, universities were like normal places as they had been for decades. And it used to be really fun to be a professor. And it used to be really fun to go to college. And then weird stuff started happening around 2013, 2014. And Greg was the first person I know of to diagnose it and see that something strange is happening. Many students are, are, are seem to be, they seem to be engaging in the exact cognitive distortions that, that Greg had learned to not do when he learned CBT. Um, and so things started getting weird in about 2013, 2014. Uh, and then Greg came to me and we wrote up our article, The Coddling the American Mind. And that was ultimately published in August of 2015. And in an unrelated thread, um, I co-founded Heterodox Academy uh, in September of 2015, along with some other professors that were observing strange things happening among the faculty. So Heterodox Academy was not about undergrads at all. It was really just a community of researchers who were concerned about um, political pressures and biases in research. So the article comes out in August of 2015, and a lot of people say we're exaggerating, we're cherry picking, you know, sure, a couple of things are happening at a few universities here and there. Um, and, uh, and then this thing happens at Claremont McKenna, um, which was so awful. I mean, I, I urge people to watch, click on the video link if you, to see the video of, of this poor woman surrounded by angry students with bullhorns. Um, and, you know, you can see that she's crying. Uh, and then right after this happens at Claremont McKenna, the thing happens at Yale with uh, Nicholas and Erica Christakis, and that blows up so big that, that wipes out everything else. So very few people really saw or learned about this Claremont McKenna event, but it, it, it was just so revealing about a change in dynamics. And it's that change in dynamics that makes it much less fun to be a professor, much less fun to be a student. Uh, so many people say they're walking on eggshells. And this is a perfect example of why people are walking on eggshells. So would you have changed anything that you wrote from 2015 to today? Well, about the importance of the principle of charity um, or my analysis of what happened at Claremont McKenna, uh, no, I would not have changed anything. But what I think I would add now and what I wasn't sufficiently um, clued into back in 2015 was the importance of leadership. Because what I understand now that I didn't understand then was that social media has knocked down the walls between everything. There are, there are no longer shared narratives about anything. And every institution is a constant battle for definition. Who are we? What's going on? What's our story? Um, uh, and what we've seen is, is we've seen student activists putting forth a narrative. and great, fine, make your case, narrative should contest, but, but they put forward a narrative, and it's generally at the most progressive schools is where the narrative 
tends to be put forth that we are incredibly racist. We always have been. We always will be. And it'd be fine if you make that case. But but what happens is the leaders almost never contest that narrative. Um, I can only think of three or four cases where the president of the university contested the narrative or even defended any of his staff or faculty. So the leaders have pretty much always just said, oh, my, we're so sorry. Oh, yes, you're right. You know, this this young woman is trying to figure out her identity and she's trying to figure out what Claire McKenna is. And she put the most horrible reading on everything. And I would guess she's now graduated with this kind of a reading of the world. And one thing I'm seeing as this problem has spread into businesses and nonprofit organizations is that people who have this view of the world are unemployable. I mean, think about, and this is what I would have emphasized. I would have emphasized you know, the importance of leadership because that's why it spreads so fast. And I would also have emphasized how bad this is for the people who hold these views. Because if you think about it, imagine marrying someone who always took everything you said in the worst possible way and who broadcast that publicly and who found fault in everything that you were trying to do. It would be impossible to be married to such a person. Well, it's almost impossible to employ such a person. I mean, you, you can't. And this is the conversation I have with business people every day, literally every day, um, that this way of thinking is basically making it very difficult for them to serve their customers or create the products they're trying to create. So I think I would have gone further in this essay and really emphasized how destructive this is for the students, for organizations that employ them, and especially for progressive organizations, because this isn't happening in the conservative organizations. But if you talk to people who run a progressive nonprofit, everyone I talk to, it's the exact same conversation. And it's an extension of what happened at Claremont McKenna. So what what is your bottom line? What do you want to make sure people take away from your writings on, on this? Um, there are certain ancient truths, ancient wisdom that we've been told by Buddha and the Stoics and Jesus. It's in the Hebrew Bible. It's almost everywhere that we tend to be too quick to judge. And we need to be slower to judge, quicker to forgive. And we need to recognize that we are biased and incomplete. We make mistakes. And social life, a cooperative community, inclusion, these things can't happen if we encourage a norm of taking people in the least generous way. That's great. Thank you, John. My pleasure, Zach. Thank you. Jonathan Height. You've been listening to Heterodox Out Loud. If you enjoy our podcast, subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Even better, leave us a review. The folks at Davies Content produce this show. I'm Zach Rausch. Thanks for listening.